Gosh, isn't that powerful? Yeah. Hey, open up your Bibles to Mark chapter 2. Uh, that scene came from uh, The Chosen. If you haven't watched The Chosen, it's phenomenal. Uh, so go ahead, uh, put that on uh, a date night for you and your, your wife or your friends and just binge that thing, man. It is so, so good. Um, but here, here, obviously, we're showing that video because we're moving into something. We want to talk about um, that particular scene and others that are going on around that scene as well. In Mark chapter 2, um, it's a part of a big um, Mark sandwich, you could say. The way that Mark writes in the text um, is he will use a bunch of words and a bunch of stories to convey one point. Uh, and so all of chapter 2 and a little bit of chapter 3 gravitates towards uh, something big that Mark wants to communicate to us. Um, but it starts right here with this scene uh, in Mark chapter 2. It starts right here because Jesus says four words in this moment that changed everything. Up until this moment, it had been fun and games and everything was exciting and everybody was having a great time. The disciples are seeing Jesus heal and they're just amazed and it has been beautiful. But these four words changed everything. Jesus said, your sins are forgiven. Your sins are forgiven. And those words changed everything because now it's not just about people getting healed. It's not about people seeing this great spectacular teacher out in the midst. Those four words claim something that nobody at this time could have ever imagined. Those four words coming from the mouth of Jesus meant that there was now somebody who was on the scene that was standing in front of them who not only had the power to heal people, but he had the authority. I'm going to say that word again because that's going to be the theme of the, or the chapter 2 in the book of Mark. He had the authority, not just the power to heal. He had the authority to forgive sins. And when those words come out of the mouth of Jesus... The fun and games are over, and everything went from, man, it's all good, we're having a great time, to what on earth is going on? Not because of anything that the disciples had done, but this was simply because of what Jesus had just done. Because Jesus just claimed authority in heaven, but he also claimed authority on earth. He claimed authority in the physical world, which they've already seen, but he also claimed authority in the spiritual world, and that set the world on edge in that moment. And so we could say this was the moment that it just got real. Not for Jesus, because Jesus knew what he was doing. He knew what to expect. He knew what he was calling the disciples to. But I would say that this was the moment that it first started to get real and started to sink in what was going on with the disciples. I don't think they understood everything that was going on. I don't think they understood what was going on until Jesus actually ascended into heaven in the book of Acts. But I think this was the moment where all of a sudden, it's not just going to be fun and games. There's going to be ups and downs that come along in this road. And it just got real. Again, all of chapter 2 and a little bit of chapter 3, it presents this huge problem. And the problem has to deal with authority. Who has the real authority? The religious leaders who have been on the scene for a while now? Or does Jesus have the authority? Because the one who has authority is the one who gets to call the shots, right? Isn't that how it works at your job? Whoever, is it, whoever the boss is gets to call the shots. Whoever the leader is gets to call the shots. And so who's the one who's going to have the authority, not only in heaven but in, in earth, who gets to call the shots around here? And you begin to see a power struggle starting in Mark chapter 2. Not with Jesus necessarily, because Jesus knows who has the power. He knows who's in control. But uh, the, the power struggle that's on earth now with the religious leaders, there, there's tension that begins to rise. And so chapter 2 and a little bit of chapter 3 
lays out a few different stories where antagonism starts to kick in, opposition starts to show up, and, and it starts to kick in against Jesus, but it also kicks in for those who are beginning to follow him as well. And so I want you to hear this as we get started. Following Jesus will always come with haters. Following Jesus will always come with haters. And so not only the disciples that were starting to follow Jesus in the book of Mark, but those disciples who will come all the way down the line from 1st century, 2nd century, all the way down to the 21st century to you who are sitting in this room right now, we, if we follow Jesus the way that he has called us to follow him, we will face opposition. We will face haters that, that come along with that. And so we have to know that that's going to come so that when it comes, we don't get thrown off mission. Because I don't know how you came to Christ, but when I came to Christ, man, uh, there was somebody uh, that just loved me to Jesus, but nobody ever told me that there were going to be downs, that there were going to be people who come like, like I only, man, I'm coming into the kingdom and this is going to be amazing. It's going to be glorious. My life is going to be changed. And I never expected that there would be like, ah, I'd be running against the wall sometime or I feel like there were people out to get me. I never even imagined that Satan would be out to get me. I never imagined there would be a target on my back, but yet that's what we learn from being a disciple. That's what we learn in the New Testament. That's what we see throughout um, all of those who come to follow Jesus, that there is going to be opposition and haters that come along. And so this morning, what I want to do is I want to look at three challenges to Jesus' authority that I want us to, to look at, uh, and I want us to pay attention to them because they really kind of prepare us for the same antagonism that the followers of Jesus not only face then, but we face today. And again, if we're prepared for them, we won't be shocked. And we won't be thrown off of, of mission when they show up. And so the first challenge shows up in the first 12 verses. And because we're covering so many, so much this morning, usually like we'll try to read through the entire text, we're going to try to grab everything that Mark was trying to convey in this one message. And so we're going we're gonna to move through it really quickly. So if you're somebody who likes to read line by line or word by word, I'm going to frustrate you terribly this morning. And it's not my intention to do that. I just want to grab the whole context of what Mark is trying to lay out uh, for us in this particular section. Okay? Okay? All right, good. Uh, so the, the first challenge shows up in those first 12 verses, and it's the story that you just watched. And the challenge is this, and it shows up in a question. And, and we can wrap it up like this. Who do you think you are? Who do you, who do you think you are? And it's a challenge against the authority of Jesus. And if it's a challenge against the authority of Jesus, it's going to become an issue for the followers of Jesus uh, as well. So right now, Jesus, he's back home. He's in Capernaum. The disciples are there. there are, they've gone through the whirlwind um, of ministry, that 24-hour period that Tony talked about last week. They've seen uh, people healed. They've seen Jesus teach with authority. They've seen him cast out demons. Just wildly amazing things have been going down. And then you have this break of time. There's a few days where just kind of, oh, let's catch our breath and let's breathe. But in that catching your breath and breathing time, like there's a, another whirlwind that, that's beginning to shape up because the word of Jesus, his teaching is going out. The word that he is healing people is going out. And so there is a large crowd of people that are ready to start following Jesus. And they start to show up on the scene and bringing their sick family, bringing their sick friends, hoping um, to some level that Jesus will do for them what he has done for other people that they've heard about. And before you know it, the house that Jesus is staying in there in Capernaum, it's filled up with people on the inside 
and it's filled up with people on the outside. So much so, it was so difficult for anybody to get into the room, hence the scene that you saw somebody coming in from um, the, the roof. And so Jesus, we know that he came to proclaim the kingdom, right? And a proclaimer is a preacher. And a preacher that Jesus was, he never misses an opportunity to capture the crowd. And because there's a large crowd around him, he begins to tell them the good news. He begins to preach uh, the good news to them. The kingdom is here. Repent and believe. This was his message. And while he's teaching, that paralyzed man shows up. His friends brought him there. They believed that Jesus could heal him. They hoped that Jesus would, in fact, heal him. So they rip off the roof. They lower him down in front of Jesus. And there were so many things in the New Testament that I would have loved to have been there to see. This is pretty close to the top of the list. Because imagine being in a room where somebody just starts to float down. And frankly, like the guy in the movie said, hey, what are you doing on our roof? Like, put it back, man. What are you doing? But to sit there and be like, what is going on now? And then everybody who's in the room, they're there because they have some type of expectation of Jesus. They, they want to hear him teach, but I think they want to see him heal people. And so as he's coming down or as he's there, there's the expectation that Jesus is going to do Jesus stuff with, with this guy who's there. And obviously they're expecting Jesus to heal the man. That's why they're there. But what happens next, nobody, nobody could wrap their mind around the four words that changed everything. He looked at the paralyzed man. He saw the faith of the friends. And then he says in verse 5, my child, your sins are forgiven. Wait, hold on. That's not why we brought our friend. Like, we brought him to do, like, we want him to walk again. Your sins are forgiven. What are you talking about? This is the moment where it gets real because there were some teachers of the law who were there, some of which were Pharisees. There, there's a few different kinds of people that you run into in the New Testament or in the book of Mark. You've got the religious leaders um, uh, that, that make up this whole Sanhedrin, um, kind of like the official party or whatnot. You have uh, Pharisees. You've got Sadducees. You've got just teachers of the law. The teachers of the law were just simply, they, they taught and they expanded what the law meant. You've got the Pharisees who they just really got strict on everything. You got the Sadducees um, who had, uh, they taught the law as well, but they had a particular leaning of the law where they didn't believe that there was a resurrection. And the Pharisees and the Sadducees butted heads against this. There was an inner kind of power struggle already before Jesus ever showed up. And so now you've got all these people who are there, but you've got the religious leaders who are somehow came to the house where Jesus is teaching. And as he's teaching there, they, they, they begin to question in their mind as they hear Jesus say these words, your sins are forgiven. They didn't even get, let these words get off of their lips. It's in their mind. And Jesus says, what is he saying? This is blasphemy. Only God can forgive sins. He repeats to them what they're thinking. This is what they're thinking. Only God can forgive sins. This is blasphemy. And they were right. Only God can forgive sins. That was the point. What Jesus was showing them is that I am the Father. I, or I'm not the Father. The, I and the Father are one, and I am standing in front of you as God. But they were missing it. And this is the first challenge of opposition that shows up. They're asking the question, who do you think you are? What gives you the right to say that someone's sins can be forgiven? Who do you think you are? Do you hear it? It's the question of authority in this moment. Jesus has already shown him in chapter 1 what kind of authority he has. He has the authority over demons. He has the authority to be able to teach like nobody's ever heard before. He's got authority over disease. And we're going to see a little bit later in the book of Mark that not only does he have authority over these things, but he has authority over life and death. They can bring people back from the dead. But at this moment, nobody has ever heard 
that somebody has the authority to forgive sin. Yet this is what Jesus just said. He says, just to show you this is who I am, just to point out to you that I'm capable of this and I have this kind of authority, I'm going to tell you what, verse 10, I will prove to you that the Son of Man has the authority on earth to forgive sins. And he looked at the man and said, stand up, take up your bed or take up your mat, get up and walk. And guess what happened? He did. Muscles that probably hadn't fired in years. Muscles that are probably atrophied. If somebody were to prop him up before this happened, he would just fall back down because there's no stability in those legs and in that body. He immediately, the text says, or he jumps up and he walks out. This is amazing. But that's not the greatest miracle that takes place in this moment. The greatest miracle is what Jesus says. These four words, your sins are forgiven. That's the authority that Jesus had. That's what ruffled the feathers of the leaders. And so at those words, the roaches started coming out from the walls, <laughs> sort of filling the area. The haters started to show up in, in the room. There's somebody here claiming to be God. And when there's a claim like that, you can bet it's going to ruffle some feathers. Anybody who claims to be God and those who follow somebody that says that they can forgive sins can be sure to bump up against some haters along the way. And when you start making a claim that I follow somebody who says that they can forgive sin and somebody uh, who forgave my sin and you, and you say, I want to teach, I want to tell you about this person who wants to forgive your sin too, you better believe that there are going to be people who want to come along and say, yes, I'm with that, but there are going to be some mockers. There's going to be some scoffers that come up and begin to show up in the crowd. And people who say, who do you think you are? What right do you have? Who do you think you are? You think you're better than me? You, you, you think you're holier than me? You, you think you've got it all figured out and I'm over here falling apart? There are going to be questions of who do you think you are? How many of you have lost friends because you said, I follow a man who forgives sins? I mean, you've lost jobs because you said, I follow a man who forgives sins. And you were vocal uh, about that. This comes with opposition. And so the implications from this passage are clear. Disciples of Jesus are going to face opposition. It's going to happen. There are going to be people who just don't accept that Jesus is God and that he has the authority to forgive sin. And the temptation for you and me and for followers of Jesus is going to be to, when we face opposition, to bail out when we bump against pushback. But I think what we learn from Jesus here is that we don't bail out when the questions start rolling. We actually push into the mission. We dig in as Jesus did. And so when things get real and we bump into haters, we have two options. We can either bail out or we can dig in and be bold. And I would suggest to you that the example that we see from Jesus is that he just steps in and he is bold. And what he was teaching his disciples and what he teaches you and me is that we don't bail out when it gets hard. That's when we dig in and we get even more bold. The second challenge shows up in verses 13 through 17. And the challenge is this, and it comes up in another question as well. Why do you hang out with sinners? Why do you hang out with people that don't look like us, talk like us, act like us? Why do you hang out with people that we would say, that's not okay, that's not kosher? And the, the question of the day, the opposition, it's an attack on the character and the integrity of Jesus. And so you better believe if you follow Jesus, there is going to be an attack on your character and your credibility for how you choose to follow Jesus when you're following according to his word. And so now Jesus, he's left Capernaum or he's in the area and now he's walking along the lakeshore. 
What you're going to find out in the book of Mark is that Jesus is always on the move. He's always moving from one place to another place to another place because he's got a mission, and he's not going to be deterred from it. He wants to proclaim the good news to everybody that he can get the good news to. And so he's um, just had this moment in the house, and now he's along the lakeshore, and he's walking along, and there's a huge crowd that's following him, and he's doing Jesus stuff. He is teaching the crowd that's around him as he's walking. And as he's walking, he sees Levi sitting there at his tax collector booth. And he says, hey, follow me, Levi, and come and be my disciple. Come tether your life to me. Come join your life to me and join this great adventure. I don't know about you, but um, uh, there are moments in my life where I tethered myself to things that I thought would give me life, but just completely killed my life. And, And what Jesus is saying to Levi, say, hey, come, move away from things that you think add value to your life, and you come and tether your life to me, and I will show you what real life, true life is on this adventure with me. And so Levi does exactly what Simon, Andrew, James, and John have done. What the others decided, they, they left everything. He left everything to follow Jesus. And I want you to understand what Jesus is doing when he calls Levi here. Like, when we look at Levi, we find out that he's a tax collector. What do we know about tax collectors? Well, they were Jewish people who worked for the Roman government. They would go to um, their Jewish brothers and sisters, and they would collect taxes, and they would add a fee on top of that tax so that they could pad their own pockets. Now, here's, let's, let's think about Levi. Let's put it in his context. Levi would have gone, and he would have gone to his mom and dad and say, give me money for the Romans. He'd have gone to his aunt and uncle and said, give me money for the Romans. He would have gone to his brothers and sisters, aunts and uncles, and said, give me money for the Romans. And he would take their money, he would hand it over to an enemy to the Jews, people who hated them, and they hated the Romans in in turn. And so there was a tension, and there was a hatred towards tax collectors. And theoretically, there's a hatred towards Levi at the same time here. Tax collectors were on the same category as murderers and as, as robbers. That's the class that they were in according to the Jews. And so two things are happening here that I don't want us to miss. Jesus is calling someone to follow him and come be a part of his disciples that nobody else likes, that everybody else hates. He's saying, come and follow me. And he's expecting that the disciples who are already on board with him are going to get along with him. He's bringing him, you guys are going to be unified because you're going to be a part of the same mission. Now think about this. Like, Grab your worst enemy, who, if you have an enemy, or your worst rival, or, or, uh, and, 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 and somebody were to say, hey, now they're, they've got to be in your inner circle. They've got to be a close confidant to you. Like, no, brother, we're not doing that. Or, or you're at a work assignment, and, and you've got your team that's, that's around you, and that, that person who doesn't do any work that you just can't stand because they're, you're carrying their load, they now put them on your team. And you're like, I don't want them on it. They're on your team. Figure it out. Like, that, that's the scenario here because Levi would have taxed them, would have charged them more money than, than the taxes were worth, and he would have given that money to the Romans. And so there was bad blood here. Yet Levi becomes a disciple. And what Jesus is saying is that there is no one who's going to be excluded. There is no one who's going to be excluded from being able to follow me. But here's where the real problem comes in. Levi invites Jesus over to his house. So there's a large crowd. So it's not just Levi who's coming over. He invites Jesus over, but it's not just Jesus. There's a larger guest list that's there. Verse 15, I love how the NLT writes this here. Later, Levi invited Jesus and his disciples to his home as dinner guests, along with many tax collectors and other disreputable sinners. 
There are many people of this kind among Jesus' followers. Disreputable sinners. How about that, huh? This is the kind of people who were hanging around Jesus and Jesus wanted to be around. And Mark says that this kind of activity was common. There were all kinds of people who followed Jesus that were considered outcasts or sinners or unworthy by the religious elite. People that maybe you and I, if we were living in the day, maybe we would maybe think even the, the, the same thing. And, but this was the kind of stuff that drove the Pharisees absolutely bonkers. Because look at verse 16. But when the teachers of the religious law, who were Pharisees, saw him eating with tax collectors and other sinners, they asked his disciples, look, this isn't an attack on Jesus now, right? This is coming directly to the disciples, but it's about Jesus. It says, why does he, your leader, okay, why does he Eat with such scum. Why does he eat with such scum? Listen to how they talk. They're disreputable. They're the scum. They're the outcast. And I love that saying that you, you don't have to guess who people are. Um, that if you listen long enough, they'll tell you who they are. They'll let you know by their words and by their actions. This is what's happening here. When you hear what they say, you get the indicator that the religious people only ever hung out with other religious people, people that only they deemed were okay, right? And I don't know about you, but when Jesus found me, I wouldn't have fit in this group. I wouldn't have been one of the, the religious elite. I wouldn't have fit in with the leaders. I still don't. I sin too much. I break their law. Um, I'm not always politically correct. I make mistakes. And so I would have been one of the scum at the dinner. Let's be honest. You and me would have been sitting together. We would have been called the scum by the religious leaders. We'd have been considered outcast. But what these Pharisees had created was a religion that kept people away from God. Jesus was calling people to come in and get close to him and get to know him. They were pushing people to the outside and not letting them in. Isn't that what religion does? Religion says you have to be just like me in order to be a part. You have to look like me, talk like me, act like me, think like me. We have to vote the same. You have to be just like me in order to be a part. But Jesus was saying, come to me and get to know me. Come to me and follow me, and I'll show you what real life looks like. When I first came to Christ, I mean, I was on fire. I love the Lord. I love being in the word. I left everything behind, drugs, alcohol, girls. I, like, I, I left behind the things that I tethered myself to to say, this is what real life is. When Jesus came in and said, I am your life, I, I left it all behind. I said, okay, I'm going to follow this new life. And I wanted my friends to know this Jesus who had changed me. And so I went around and started telling uh, my friends that I, that I hung out with. And I remember rolling up to one of my friends' house one time. And I had this old uh, Plymouth, Plymouth Duster. Y'all remember the Plymouth Duster? You, who drove a Plymouth Duster growing up? Like, I, yeah, so I, I had the one that wasn't the muscle car. I had the one that they turned into a family car, okay? Like, it, it like, didn't have any muscle, and, like, you had to just, I mean, you almost had to pedal with your feet to make it go. Um, but, like, I remember I, I rolled up into my friend's house, and uh, he was standing outside, and, and I pulled up into the driveway, and I still had 12-inch uh, speakers in the back trunk, like, like the big bass speakers. And, and, and I, I remember, like, I was bumping. Y'all know what I was bumping to? Rich Mullins. Y'all know Rich Mullins? Rich Mullins doesn't have a bass beat anywhere in his music. But I was trying to bump to Rich Mullins. My buddy listened to Rich, and I said, well, I guess this is what you got to listen to when you're a Christian. I didn't know any better. And so I was listening to Rich. If you're a rich person, sorry. Like, he's good. He's got good lyrics, okay? But I was bumping to what I had, and so I, I roll into his driveway, and, and, and I'm telling him, you know, I'm talking with him, like, hey, where you been? What's been going on? And I'm talking about Jesus, and, man, I, I'm, I'm in love with him, and, and that sort of thing. And uh, 
he looked at me and said, how long are you going to keep doing this Jesus thing? So what do you mean? He said, how long are you going to keep doing this Jesus thing? When are we going to get the old Anthony back? And that scared me. You know why that scared me? It scared me because um, for the first time I realized that, that there was another option, that I could run back to the old stuff. Like I, like I, I could if I wanted to run back. Now here's the reality. We know that grace keeps us, Jesus keeps us, and, and he, doesn't, he doesn't cast us out once we come to him. But the reality first hit me that I could run back to the same old stuff. And so what happened was I, I bubbled. Y'all know what it means to bubble? I, I began to bubble. I, I separated myself from people that I would call sinners. I separated myself from other non-believers. Uh, and I did that for so long because I was afraid that I was going to jump right back in. Or I was afraid that I was going to mess up and somehow Jesus was going to get mad at me and he was going to cast me out. And um, that I was going to mess up this good thing that he had called me to. And I didn't want to do that. And so I just bubbled myself and I created this Christian bubble around me where everybody looked like me, talked like me, believed like me. Um, which to some degree I think was a little bit good because I had to get away from I had There had to be for me a clean break. Uh, there, was, there was just so much going on. And so I needed that, but I never, I never got out. It, but it was done out of, of fear. And so as a, what happened was, uh, although that was kind of a good thing, I had no interaction with people who didn't know Jesus. Um, I had no interaction with what, what Jesus is going to call uh, sick folks. And as a pastor, that's something I still struggle with because I can spend most of my time sitting around here with an amazing staff and just hang out with believers who look like me, talk like me, act like me. And I have to force myself to get out of my bubble. And I don't know, like, if you've put yourself in a bubble, we have to force ourselves to, to get out of that place. The religious leaders created a bubble of people that they said were clean, and then they left everybody else out. There was a, a self-righteousness that Jesus is calling out of people here. And guys, here's the deal. Like, if we're never around people who don't look like us, talk like us, act like us, if we're never around people who don't share the same values as us, how are they going to know who Jesus is? How are they going to hear about Jesus? I mean, he, he doesn't necessarily need us, but he chooses to use us to be a vocal person for him, to stand up and, and be bold. There are people around us who need to know um, who he is. And they said, why do you hang around scum? And Jesus claps back at him in verse 17. When Jesus heard this, he told him, Healthy people don't need a doctor. Sick people do. I've come to call not those who think they're righteous, but those who know that they're sinners. What he's saying is, I didn't come for those who are sick. Or, or, or I'm sorry, I didn't come for those who think that they're well and they don't need any help. I came for those who know that they're sick, who know that they're sinners, who, who are living in a bubble. I came to break them out of that place and to give them new life. The Pharisees were blasting Jesus and his character on the basis of who he hung around and who he chose to invite into his circle and, who's he, and who he called to be his disciples. They said, why do you hang around such sinners, such scum? And Jesus said, it's because they need Jesus. It's because they need me. That's why I'm around them. And what we learn from Jesus is that he doesn't bail when the questions and the accusations and the opposition comes his way. He remembered his mission. He said, I'm here for the sick, and that's who I'm going to. He digs in, and he doesn't bail out, and he is just even bolder. And so the thing for us is when things get real and we bump into haters, we can bail out or we can choose to dig in and be bold where we are. The third thing and the last thing is in verses 18 through 28. And, and the opposition comes in, and it comes in a question, why don't you do the things that we do? Why don't you do them like we do them? And the deal is it's an attack on your theology and it's an attack on your tradition. Now, Jesus is theology. Okay? Jesus is 
the right tradition. And they're questioning on him how he's going to carry out his word and his law. And so if Jesus was questioned on his tradition and he was questioned on his theology, don't you think men and women of Christ who choose to follow him are going to be questioned on how we follow as well our theology and our tradition? So here's the deal. As Jesus walked and lived, he did things differently than the the religious folks did, the the religious leaders. And as we read through the Gospel of Mark, what we're going to see over and over again is that Jesus was teaching that the kingdom was here. And as he taught that the kingdom was here, he was saying that there is a way that you live in the kingdom of God that doesn't look like the way that you thought it was going to look. You think that it's coming in rote memorization of the law and carrying out every single iota of the law. But he's saying the pace of the kingdom of God and living in the kingdom of God is not going to be with rote memorization and rote obedience. The pace is going to be the pace of grace. That's what it's going to look like to live in the kingdom of God. It's going to be at that pace, not in rote obedience uh, or to man-made laws created by the religious leaders. Up to this point, there were like 635 written laws that the leaders tried to keep. And they try to impose on everybody else. And on top of those 635 laws, they made up their own laws to go along with that. Now, here's the deal. I want to be fair to them because I think they had great intentions when it came to putting boundaries around the law. I think they did not want to um, break the law, and so they created laws on top of those laws to put a boundary around them so they wouldn't get close. I think it was with good intention. But here's what we end up seeing they began to miss God because of the boundaries that they were putting up. Think about it like this. If your uh, mom or dad told you, hey, don't go outside and get dirty. And you're like, okay, I, I won't. And so the way that you interpret is that, it, it, so, so I don't get dirty, I'll never go outside again. And so I just stay in my house. And what I miss by never going outside is I miss the air, I miss the play, I miss all the good things that are on the outside, the experience of enjoying what God has created. And so that's what was happening with the religious leaders. They had put all these boundaries around the law. Instead of experiencing God, it was keeping them from experiencing Him. It was creating fear around them, and they were putting fear in the people around them as well. And so they never got to experience a relationship with the Lord. And that's what religion does. Religion will call you to obey all the rules, but it will cause you to run from God in fear of messing up. But it will also cause you, when you mess up, to run away even further as opposed to coming back because you just don't know what, how God's going to react. You're afraid he's going to smite you. You're afraid he's going to smoke you. Um, but yet Jesus is saying that the kingdom of God is going to be lived out in grace. Grace and relationship draw you into God. Fear does not. The kingdom of God um, that Jesus was teaching was one of grace and relationship. And, and so these leaders, they say, why don't you fast like us? Why don't you observe the Sabbath like us? And Jesus says, why should they fast? Like, they're walking with me. They're right here with me. What's the point of a fast? A fast is dedicated time, uh, set, setting, setting aside uh, something to remind people to pray to think about God, to seek direction. It's a time to get into the presence of God. And so what Jesus was saying is like, hey, they don't need to fast right now because I'm with them. Like fasting is to get you into the presence of God. I'm with them, so they will fast. They're just not going to do it while I'm right now in their midst. So they're going to do it later. They'll enjoy being with me now. Now, when you read this text, you get to the place of the, um, the wineskins and the patches on, on old clothing. I always have to slow down in this moment because I'm like, what's, the, like, what's, what's the, uh, the example here? You ever get to a point in Scripture where Jesus is using an illustration or somebody's using something? You're like, 
man, if, if I don't hit the brakes right here, I'm just going to blow by this and never understand what's going on. So every time I get to this passage, I, I have to think, what is this? The old wineskins with new wine, if you put new wine in old wineskins, it busts the skin. If you put a brand new patch on an old garment of clothing, the material can't handle the patch, and it begins to separate the old material. It breaks it down. And so what Jesus was saying in this moment is that there is something new that's coming along. The kingdom of God is here, and it's new, and it's full of grace. So get ready for things to look different than what you've experienced up to this point. It would be disastrous or disreputable or delusional to think that somehow religion and grace go together. It would be disastrous to think that somehow Jesus and religion can fit together because Jesus is not religion. Jesus is life, and he is a relationship. And so um, this is what Jesus is saying with this patch stuff and this garment. I'm doing something brand new. I'm doing something brand new. The whole context of these two sections is that Jesus was saying grace is always going to trump religion. Now, I want you to know that Jesus doesn't break the law. Jesus never breaks the law in the New Testament. Like he is the fulfillment of the law, and Mark says that he was Lord of the Sabbath. So even though he is um, uh, picking grain or allowing his disciples to pick grain and do that sort of thing, he, he's, not breaking, he's not breaking the law. First of all, he's not breaking the Sabbath because he is the Sabbath, Mark says. But he's also not breaking the law because the, the religious leaders, they've interpreted the law to mean one thing. They created man-made laws around this law, right? So the law said that you could pluck grain around the outside of the fields. This was not a work that was considered in, in the Old Testament. So Jesus never breaks the law. He fulfills the law. He's the Lord of the Sabbath. Grace is always going to be greater than the man-made religion and tradition. How does this show up? How do these challenges show up in our context right now? Well, just a, a few ways, a, a thousand million different ways, probably. I don't know that's a number. Um, but we're going to celebrate some baptisms here in just a few minutes. But rote religion versus grace in relationship, we'll look at a baptism and say, well, you didn't get baptized like I got baptized. You didn't do it the way that we did it in our tradition. And so, of course, my tradition is right, and so yours is wrong. Um, I'm better, you're not as good as me. Um, it will show up in ways of our, our worship. Um, well, you don't worship in spirit. Like, you don't speak in tongues, or you're not lively when you worship. And it might show up in, well, you're too subdued when you worship. And so, it doesn't, and so obviously, the person who's saying the thing to the other thinks their way is better than the other person's. It's a personal conviction for them. Or you don't share the same convictions as somebody else. They read the scriptures and they have a conviction over one thing and, and somebody else reads the, the, the scriptures and they have a conviction in a different way. And then we start to battle one another in our conviction and then our self-righteousness begins to pop out and we start to break down over our tradition and over our theology. Not, not theology that is... Uh, um, remember a long time ago we talked about closed fist theology stuff that we will never let go of. We're talking about convictions that don't matter at the end of the day. And, and then... You don't listen to um, the same kind of music that we listen to. You listen to, say, you listen to secular music, and oh, you listen to Christian music, or you don't listen to the same kind of Christian music that I was. Like, we just start battling each other on this kind of stuff, and it just, it just gets a little bit bonkers. Or you don't rest on Sunday. You choose to take your day off on Monday, or you don't take a day off at all. And then, like, our view is better than the other person's, and so we just start getting crazy. Um, 
It's extra biblical stuff. It's extra biblical convictions that we turn into laws for ourselves and other people. And when they don't do what we do, we begin to question the character and the integrity because our way we assume is the right way. And so what we learn from Jesus here is that he doesn't cave to the pressure of other people. When things get real, he doesn't run and bail. He pushes in against the haters and continues with the mission that Jesus or that God has given him. And so we learn that from him when things get real and we bump into haters, we don't bail out. We dig in and we be bold. Uh, in fact, you get to see Jesus be bold and fairly angry in the beginning of chapter 3. And I want to read this, and we're going to end with it. Jesus went into the synagogue again and noticed a man with a deformed hand. Since it was a Sabbath, Jesus' enemies watched him closely. Now they're enemies. They started off with thoughts in their mind. Now they're enemies. They watched him closely. If he healed the man's hand, they planned to accuse him of working on the Sabbath. Jesus said to the man, with a deformed hand, come and stand in front of everyone. Then he turned to his critics and asked, does the law permit good deeds on the Sabbath or, does it, uh, or is it a day for doing evil? Is this a day to save life or to destroy it? And you can almost hear Jesus' voice beginning to rise a little bit, but they wouldn't answer him when he asked a question. He looked around at them angrily and was deeply saddened by their hard hearts. Then he said to the man, hold out your hand. And so the man held out his hand, and it was restored. He healed him, just like in the beginning of chapter 2. The, the man with the para, uh, with, uh, who was paralyzed, he healed him. And now he's healing at the end of the, the, this, this section. This is putting the, the Mark sandwich on. He started with a healing, he's ending with a healing, and everything in between is opposition. Okay? That's how Mark's writing that. And at, the, at once, in verse 6, the Pharisees went away. And met with the supporters of Herod to plot how to kill Jesus. Yikes! It went from thoughts to now they're plotting with the Herodians to get rid of Jesus, to have him killed, to have him murdered. In just a few short chapters, these men just kind of went off the rails. And here's what I want to say to us, like to hopefully we'll, we'll hang on to. Haters are going to show up. Opposition and antagonism, it's going to be a part of the life of the disciple who chooses to follow Jesus according to his word and how he lays it out in, in, uh, in that his own life, but also in the scriptures. But when the haters show up and things begin to get real, we don't bail. We dig in and we are bold for Jesus. So I just want you to think, how can you be bold for Jesus this week? Maybe that's getting out of the bubble. Maybe you've put yourself in a cocoon and, and, and people are just like you. Start looking around like, well, that's just a, another white dude just like me. That's just a, another white gal just like me. That's another person who votes just like me. That's another whatever who believes the same that I believe. And, and then you start to look around and like, man, everyone looks just like me. Maybe that's an opportunity to bust outside of the bubble that you're in and to get around people who Jesus said are sick and who need to know the truth. So maybe that's getting out of the bubble. Um, I would say don't hide. Man, get used to, to being different from other people for Jesus and don't be afraid of it. Embrace it and embrace being the one who's bold and goes out on a limb. Get known for being the, 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 the guy or the girl who is bold for the faith, not be known for the one who doesn't ever say anything. Stand up, stand up. I remember Francis Chan telling a story in one of his sermons. I think it was a teaching on the Holy Spirit, and it was amazing. And he said, man, I want to be the guy who's walking around people and be like, man, you freak me out. Like, like, I don't know what's going on with you. Like, he was just so bold for Jesus because the Spirit was moving in him. Like, I want us to be those people. 
And, and when we follow the example of Jesus who, who doesn't bail out when questions start coming, he actually digs in and, and he gets bold. I think that's where we get led as a follower of Jesus. Opposition will come, but we're bold when it does. Would you pray with me? Uh, Jesus, thanks so much for um, friends uh, to, sh- to share uh, in the word with this morning. Thanks for RCC and what you're doing here and in our community. Uh, thank you even more for Jesus and the example that he's setting for his disciples. And as we study Mark, that he's setting for us to walk along with. Lord, there are going to be days where it is just difficult to follow. It's easy to come into the kingdom and follow you. Um, but it's, uh, it's real hard sometimes when opposition starts to show up. And so... Um, Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for your spirit that you put in us to be able to walk alongside of this life that you've called us to. Um, you told us in your word not to be surprised um, when opposition shows up, as if uh, something new is happening to us. Um, this has already been prepared in advance. And so as it comes, Lord, let us dig in and be bold. We want to be faithful for you. We want the world to know you. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.